The Guardian. Welcome again to Guardian Australia's Sydney Siege podcast. I'm Michael Safi and I'm joined by Monica Tan, who's going to grill me on a kind of dull day of proceedings at the Sydney Siege Inquest. Well, if it was a dull day, you did a great job today on the blog, Michael. And I guess I wanted to start off, though, with what you thought was the biggest story of the day. So I've been thinking about this. Look, I, I think we didn't get a lot of information on it, but I think the biggest story of the day was the fact that the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions, managed to keep four of these like six sensitive documents out of the, the remit of the inquest. So there's been this attempt by the families of the victims and others to have these um, six documents made public. And all we know about them is that they kind of um, include sort of perceived errors in the, the way that the DPP handled um, Monis's bail applications. And that's that's, we suspect, the police kind of claiming that the DPP has actually dropped the ball. Now, understandably, the DPP don't want that information released. They're saying it's because, you know, it's about legal professional privilege and they can only really do their job if they know that, uh, that essentially there's a level of secrecy with which they can operate. Um, and so I think that was the big story because we had to sort of wait about an hour and a half for the coroner to go away and make his decision and there were submissions in the morning. And I think there was a lot of disappointment in the media room because, I mean, you know, we were hoping this inquest would be a way to sort of publicly examine um, how this happened because clearly somebody dropped the ball. I mean, Manharon Monis should not have been on the street in December 2014. And I guess my sense is that we've got sort of, we've got less of a picture now to try to build, you know, there's less information available to us to build that picture as a result of today's decision. So you said that two of the documents were released so who was it exactly making that decision and on what basis can that person make that decision? Yeah, so it's, it's the coroner who's deciding it. I think what he was weighing up basically was this claim, which obviously had some credibility if he's decided it, so this, this claim by the DPP that, you know, if, if they feel like all of these communications they have with all their different stakeholders, you know, will be later made public, it makes it much harder for them to give perhaps frank and fearless legal advice or, you know, the, that was the general theme of their arguments. And he obviously decided that, and this has been, you know, pushed several times now. So he's had to make this decision over and over again. So he seems to be, you know, pretty, pretty kind of stuck in, in his reasoning here that um, he thinks that legal professional privilege should apply to these documents and that it hasn't been waived. Because basically if, you know, and this is when it was an interesting dynamical day, um, if any of the witnesses make reference to a privileged document and the DPP solicitor doesn't object to it, then the assumption is that that privilege has been waived. And so after the decision was made, the DPP solicitor was getting to his feet every five minutes whenever anything kind of came close to referencing one of these privileged documents because he was suddenly concerned that, you know, these, these four documents could be kind of surreptitiously, you know, brought into the public domain. So, so he wanted of, to cover his ass, basically. He was, exactly. Because essentially he made a mistake yesterday by not objecting to a document which allowed, you know, at least uh, one of these six documents to be released. So as much as kind of, as much as, you know, this is about fact-finding, there are also kind of quite live issues here. And it's information where if, if, you know, if this solicitor, if this barrister isn't on his game, you know, some of these documents might slip into the public domain, which obviously he doesn't want. So what did you think of that one document that was discussed today? So what that was, was a uh, submission that the um, policewoman who had been investigating Monis on accessory to murder charges. All of these issues that she was outlining um, with Monis being granted bail. And the intention was that this information would be um, uh, shown, given to the court. And it explained how Monis was potentially a flight risk, how he was, um, apparently he had gone 
to uh, the family of one of his victims um, with two bikers to collect some of his property. And the sense was that he was there to intimidate people. And so all of this was supposed to kind of play into this larger narrative about why Monis shouldn't be on bail. But the kind of mystery here is that after the police officer, Melanie Staples, passed on this information to the DPP, it was never raised in court. And so the, the magistrate never heard about her concerns. And as a result, or, you know, otherwise, Monis was, was allowed to remain on bail. So let's hear the story that um, perhaps wouldn't have made the headlines, but you thought was interesting. Well, you know, look, I think this was the, the little story, but I think, you know, conversely, it probably will make the headlines because it does push the story along a little bit. And that's the fact that we got an insight into the kind of frantic hours after the Sydney siege commenced on 15 December last year. Um, so this policewoman, Melanie Stables, in fact, she's a detective senior constable, had been investigating Monis on these accessory murder charges for over a year. You know, you can say she was sort of hunting him, trying to find some way to get this guy off the street. And she said that about 11am, um, the day of the siege, she begins to suspect that, that this guy with the gun in the Lint Cafe you know, maybe he looks a little like Monis. She, you know, maybe she's making calls and finding out that actually he's not where he's supposed to be. Point is, she said by about midday, she passed her concerns up the chain within the homicide squad and was asked to put together an intelligence file, um, you know, including photographs, a psychological assessment, and then all of the sort of uh, his past convictions and the charges that he was, he was currently facing. Um, and so it kind of helps us to fill in the picture of what the police knew that day and, and when they knew it. I mean, it was a mystery to most of us. I, think. I mean, uh, like uh, within The Guardian, we sort of found out by about 6 p.m. that day who he was, but we didn't know if the police knew. We didn't know when the police knew. And now we begin to realise that at the very latest, by 1 p.m. on that day, they had not only a name, but actually a full profile of who this gunman was. It does seem quite extraordinary that she kind of seemed to know that it was him, but it's possible they had a whole list of people, that he was just one of many names, at, even at that time, correct? Yeah, and in fact, I mean, we've reported previously that um, Bonus's identity was in fact revealed by um, some Muslim community leaders who were kind of um, called into a meeting with police and were shown various photographs and were shown kind of footage from the cafe. and. We heard that at least one of them said, actually, you know, that looks like, you know, there's this peace activist guy, claims to be an Ayatollah, could be him. And it turned out that it was. So today was a good day for who? I'm going to say it was a good day probably for the, uh, you know, the only witness who we got to hear from, who was Melanie Staples. And she also won the Good Day Award yesterday, so it's a, <laughs> a good run for her. Um, I think it was a good day for her because, you know, she's sort of emerging as... Um, you know, the, the kind of one woman who knew, the person who sort of managed to put two and two together and realised that Monis was on bail um, when he committed, you know, some of the offences he was charged with. Um, the person who, you know, fairly tirelessly was trying to convince whoever she could that Monis should not be um, on the street. But she was sort of stifled at every opportunity because as well as this submission she gave the DPP, which was never raised in court, she also wrote a letter to the DPP earlier on outlining those same concerns. And we saw some meeting notes today which appeared to indicate that she had been told or else she had come to believe that that letter had been sent by the police to the DPP. Unbeknownst to her, uh, it wasn't. The letter was never sent. And so she was asked, you know, in subsequent meetings with the DPP, why did you not ask them, hey, did you get my letter? You know, what do you think of the concerns I raised? And she said that... You know, she sat there and thought, well, look, they've obviously got the letter. If, they, if they're not asking about it, they've, they've seen it and they've ignored it or else decided it has no merit. And so what's the point in bringing it up? 
And it's kind of tragic because, you know, you begin to realize there are all of these what ifs, all these small moments where, you know, had things gone the other way, had she decided in one of these meetings to say, hold on a second, did you read my letter? You know, this whole thing could have, could have gone differently, you know, we'll never know. I mean, this is an ongoing theme for, for, this, um, for this inquest, hindsight's 2020, isn't it? So, um, you know, at this point, is it starting to look like uh, it was a real failing of the system, of everyone involved in the system, except perhaps excluding uh, Melanie Staples, or do you think that we're still looking at a case in which you, you couldn't tell, you couldn't know for sure that this that there were kind of red flags yeah, for this guy? I, I don't think I don't think we're going to come out of this, you know, with one or even two people to say, you know, they were responsible for what happened here. You know, what we're going to hear from who, who we'll hear from in the next few days will be two uh, DPP solicitors. Um, now, both their names have been suppressed, but they're the two people who ran the kind of uh, bail applications for Monis. One was in December 2013, um, and then there was another one in the middle of, of 2014, but the, the kind of relevant one is then also um, October 2014. And so what we've heard so far, I guess, is just the sort of police failings. And I think what, what we're going to hear later in this, in this session of hearings is, is you know, where the DPP dropped the ball. And I guess kind of the overall sense that I believe will emerge from it is that it, this was a systemic failure. And we've already had a kind of sense of perhaps what can change in the future to make sure this doesn't happen. So one example that was raised was the existence of a kind of national database where, you know, if you commit a Commonwealth crime and you're on bail, and then you go out and you commit a state crime, all that information will be pulled in one place because it's kind of extraordinary to realise that at the moment it isn't. And that's what happened in Monis's case. You know, it was only Staples who realised that when he was charged with these state criminal offences, he was on bail at the time for federal offences. But... You know, it's remarkable that she was one of the few people to put two and two together. It, it seems like some strange, simple tech issue, doesn't it? It's like, you know, surely we can just combine the two databases, but I'm sure there's a, there's a lot involved in Look, that. I suppose there is. And look, we've, we've, you know, it's been said that there are difficulties, you know, trying to kind of line up the laws in each jurisdiction. But at the same time, you know, it's 2015 and, and sort of when information systems are so crucial that they could be the difference between a clearly dangerous person being on the street or not, yeah. you know, it's time to kind of, it's time to fix this. Equally, it makes you think though that, that if you look at any tragedy, there's always going to be kind of loose ends that if you pull out, you realise they could have made the difference. And, and so it's, it's difficult to kind of say anything too definitive. So it sounds like we've already heard who was the loser for the day. Can I say the loser was the public interest by the fact that these, <laughs> the, well, the, the, only because these documents I think would have been good to have, have, have known, it would have been good to know what they entailed. But you know, we have to defer to the, the, the good judgment of the coroner who said that, you know, the public interest is not, does not outweigh the uh, interest of maintaining legal professional privilege, and that's fair enough. So, Michael, what are we going to hear on Friday's inquest? So, on Friday, we are hoping to hear from a bail panel that's been assembled. So, it's a bunch of experts. Um, one of them is Ian Temby QC, who have been put together by the inquest to review the three uh, bail hearings that Monas had in the year before the siege. And they're going to, to uh, you know, decide basically whether the uh, magistrate made the right decision, whether the DPP presented enough evidence, whether the police gave the right advice. Essentially, they're going to try to um, go over these decisions and figure out who made a mistake, who was in the right, where did it go wrong. 
So thank you, Michael, and thanks everyone for listening. You can catch all our episodes on iTunes or theguardian.com. Don't forget to subscribe if you want to get a recap uh, at the end of every day of the inquest. And thanks also to our tireless producer, Fred McConnell. For more great downloads, head to theguardian.com slash audio.